Every podcast needs a dark era. <laughs> it, is the, has the form been around long enough? Yeah, I think so. I think this is it, and you need to be documenting it. Tim? Hello? Yeah? Really? We have all three of us? I'm here. I'm not here. But I hear you. This is Kirk's pre-recorded I'm not here message. I think you're pre-recorded. Please call back later. Wouldn't that be a lot nastier? Your pre, your I'm not here. Like no solicitors, go away, get off so, my lawn. So, so, so the doorbell rings this week, and you know I'm, I'm writing. I don't have time for the goddamn doorbell. <laughs> and it's some guy with flyers, offering to to replace all of our windows because you know how our windows need to be replaced. Did you <laughs> say you were a Mac guy? We just we just replaced all of our windows. Right. And and he and he's pointing at the sign and he says, "I saw your no soliciting sign, <laughs> and I wanted to ring the bell and ask for permission before I left a flyer because I don't want to get in trouble." <laughs> nice. So he's trying to do it. <clears throat> he's trying to do an end around, kind of through politeness. That was what you call a backdoor solicitation. Yes. And we all know how painful that can be. I slammed the door. You, you might. That was the response. <laughs> that was you. You slammed the door on him. <laughs> Imagine That's that. Pretty- yes, I did. What are the chances that I would slam the door on someone who rang the doorbell to ask me if leaving a flyer was okay? Because I noticed your no soliciting sign. He's lucky I didn't punch him. It's 9.15 p.m. on the west coast of the United States of America on Wednesday, September 28, 2011. And that can mean only one thing. It's time for the Media Loper Bebop. Tonight, Facebook adds a ticker and a timeline and the internet flocks to Google+. Well, for a day. Then Amazon announces four new Kindles with a wide range of functionality and price points. And finally, we take a fond look at a band we've all loved for nearly 30 years, R.E.M. All that, we find out what's in Tim Gaskell's mix. On Media Loper Bebop episode 17, Time as an Abstract. I'm your host, Jim Connolly, and I'm not wearing any shoes. And with me, as always, our Facebook gold member, Tim Gaskell. I am an abstract. And Google Plus Platinum card holder, Kirk Biglione. I'm not wearing any shoes either. Does <laughs> that mean I'm you? Oh, I'm not either, for that matter. <laughs> We're all not wearing any shoes. Wait a minute. I think, but I think Jim has a he has a copyright on that line, so you have to cut those. I could sue you guys for intellectual property theft. You know, Jim could slam the door in our faces right now. I would. If I was Jim, yeah. I would. Maybe oh, I this know. is proof that I'm not Jim. Well, I think we have plenty of proof of that, Kirk. Plenty of proof. Last week, Facebook changed yet again, adding a Twitter-like news ticker to its homepage and announcing even more changes, including a blog-like timeline, which they're rolling out this week and subsequent weeks. Facebook wants to be the digital repository for every single action you make online, which is to say, these days, every single action in your life. Mark Zuckerberg calls it frictionless sharing, but a lot of people are upset, again, about the privacy implications. 
Kirk, you're on record as not being a big fan of Facebook at all. Is this the killer app that kills it once and for all for you? You know, there was this thing earlier this... Well, okay, first of all, frictionless sharing is the idea that clicking the share button because I decided I wanted to share it with you two is too much work. <laughs> oh, Let's yeah. just do that automatically <laughs> with everything you do. Okay, not only, okay, look, two things. One is I don't want everything I read on Facebook but possibly extended to sites that have the Facebook like or some other Facebook control embedded in the site, potentially could be a wide spectrum of the web. I don't want everything I do in that universe automatically shared. By the same token, I don't want everything you two do automatically shared either. We would be swimming in junk. I mean, why do we need to see each other's real-time feeds of everything we look at. How is that social? That's not of any value in a social context. That's only value to a company that's going to mine and aggregate the data. Well, <clears throat> the thing is with the ticker, though, which is what you're kind of emphasizing, or are you emphasizing the actual feed, the news feed? Well, I mean, the, well, news, the news feeds change, but what Kirk's talking about is if you opt in to share something from, a, from, from partner sites, Everything you share from those sites will show up in the ticker as opposed to just that one specific thing. And that could be mm -hmm. anyone that has a like control installed on their site. Right. And, you know, then... Which is, which is a huge, huge chunk of the web. So if I'm reading an article on The Guardian and I click like and you see that in, the, in your feed, how, why is that a problem? It's not a problem because you clicked like. I'm talking about you going to the Guardian and you going to a medical site because you think you might have hemorrhoids, <laughs> and you yeah, go to another site, and, and and they all just happen to have the Facebook like iframe embedded, and Facebook has decided that frictionless sharing is the way to go. I need to see Tim Gaskell's stream of everywhere he goes that's connected with the Facebook network. Yeah, but if I don't click like... No, what he's saying is... No, no, no. <laughs> no. That, clicking like is too much work, Tim. Oh, so... Now, we've moved on to frictionless sharing. Get with the program. You're I know, but I... so last year. This is the new Facebook. It's frictionless. It's automatic. I know, but I haven't seen an example of that yet. Because they just announced it. Okay. Combine this with the fact that it was revealed by a security researcher who Jim will link to on the blog, earlier this week that there is a bug or an intentional design feature <laughs> of the Facebook logout system that doesn't delete your cookies or only deletes a few of your cookies, leaves cookies behind that can be tied to your unique ID so that even if you log out, they can track everywhere you go that has any Facebook widget embedded, which, again, is a huge portion of the web. Facebook could be tracking... Everything you do. Be, whether or not it becomes part of your feed, they could be aggregating this as part of, in, part of demographic information they use to sell to, you know, monetize in whatever way they, they might choose if they need to when they want to go public. Um, if... if the only way to cut 
the cord so they couldn't do that was to manually delete your cookies every time you logged out. So apparently they realized this was a bug that needed to be fixed, and the guy who posted a very detailed technical analysis of what was happening, showing the cookies before and, and after logging out from Facebook, um, had been trying to report this to Facebook for a year and a half, over a year and a half, and actually knew people at Facebook, and no one was giving him a response. Once his blog post peaked on, on tech meme and was linked from everywhere, suddenly Facebook recognized that it was a bug and they're fixing it. It's just the whole thing contributes to me being suspicious of the crazy old man who doesn't use Skype and is suspicious of Facebook. So, that's well, me. That's, that's the role I'm kind of moving into. So, but, but and that actually brings up a point. Um, the, the kids... Harry's age, uh, Rox's, you know, younger cousins who are in their late teens and twenties, the ones who already are living their lives on Facebook. Do you think they're going to care about this at all? Well, I think they need to be educated about it. But what I'm saying is that that the 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 they may want to be they may bit educated on it and not care because if everybody's doing it, then everybody's it, it's not going to matter that that anybody's doing it to the to, to them i don't i i think i feel like this is one of those deals that in a weird way facebook is declaring a little bit of war on older people who this would who would care about this because your life starts when you logged into first logged into facebook which if you're 45 is much different than if you're 15 in terms mm, of yeah. being because that's what timeline is going to do it's going to track everything that you do on facebook theoretically forever so now it becomes this is who you are in the world so have you got have you both um done the timeline yet when this thing about the cookies came out i deleted all of the cookies in every browser i have that were logged into facebook and decided i wasn't going to log back in until i knew it was fixed and it's been announced that it's fixed now but i still ha i haven't i've been too busy with other things that i haven't had time to log in I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. The time I haven't seen the timeline either. Have you, I Tim? Love the I love it. Yeah, I've I've got mine going. So, well, I have no I have no interest in the timeline. I'm sorry to tell you two in particular that I know as much as I need to know about you two. And then we're doing this every week. And like, what more do I need? On Facebook too? Come on. Do I need to unfollow you two? I'm gonna unfriend you. Can I give you a little? Can I one one thing about the timeline, which is is kind of being uh, overlooked. I like it for my I like it for my own benefit. Well, I like yeah. It for my, I I like to see what you know what happened uh, five years ago. Is that how they're going to sucker you in, Tim? Yeah, it works for me. What's so interesting about five years ago? George Bush was president. No, I know, but I, I like to see what you know, what I said, what links I put up, what what you TV know. you're watching. I, I'm actually with Tim well, on this too, Kirk. I, I kind of enjoy. I, I will, I assume, enjoy seeing what I was thinking and what I was posting and what I was doing, you know, a couple of years ago. And 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 once again, if I was 15 or 16 or or 20 or whatever, I would love this. So, I'm going to give you guys a reprieve. And I will not unfriend you this week. Okay. Let's check in again next week. Tim, we need to try harder. So we could spam his wall. 
<laughs> with 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 Morrissey links. You try it. I'm, I've got some new privacy settings. I'm, you know, I really want you to try that. <laughs> I He's dare got privacy. You. You, your, your settings are so private, even you can't see it, right? This is Jim Connolly with a musical moment to die for. Despite the fact that R.E.M. is my all-time favorite band, I had a hell of a time picking a musical moment that best represented why I loved them so much. Was it the riff in life and how to live it? Was it Michael Stipe believing in coyotes and time as an abstract? Was it the last verse and choruses to fall on me? Was it the end of pilgrimage? The answer to all of those, of course, was yes. But after thinking about it, only one moment seemed perfectly apropos. The breakdown in 1987's It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. Capping off Document's hard-rocking first side, It's the End of the World explodes with three minutes of free-associating name-drop blues before collapsing into a multi-textured folk-rock title hook chorus, which then gets rescued by Peter Buck's stinging guitar. It's scary, cynical, apocalyptic, and just plain fun. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world. Stipe, Mills, and Barry singing different things at the same time? Check. Peter Buck riffing like there's no tomorrow? Check. An utterly locked in rhythm section? Check. It's everything I love about R.E.M. and everything I love about music, all wrapped up in a single joyful package. End of the world? Not so long as songs like this still exist. That was R.E.M. with It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. A song with a musical moment to die for. This morning, Amazon announced four new additions to their family of Kindles, dropping the price of the ad-supported Just a Reader, Ma'am Kindle to $79 and announcing their new high-end tablet, the Kindle Fire. What do you guys think about this? Well, I'll be real quick because Kirk probably has more to say about it. I think it's I think it's kind of cool. I like the uh, I like the idea of the Kindle Touch 3G for a very low price point of $149, $150. That's with the uh, of course that's with the special offers. Uh, of course, every every Kindle i every Kindle iPad every Kindle now comes with the choice of uh, special offers or not special offers, and it's basically about a uh, thirty or forty dollar difference. But those special phone. offers are pretty unobtrusive. Right. So you're, if you really want to go for it, go for the special offers one because, yeah, I don't think it's going to be an iPad killer or anything like that. I think there's a Kindle audience and an iPad audience, and, you know, I can see, you know, Holmes having one of each maybe. It's almost like there are two separate things to talk about. There's the fire and what the implications of the fire are, and there's the ongoing existence of the e-ink devices, which were supposed to be killed by the tablet. You know, the tablet was supposed to come along and crush the Kindle and all of the dedicated e-ink devices. And the only reason anyone thought that is because the analysts who were making those predictions didn't weren't really in tune with what, like, people who really like to read long-form narrative books were thinking. The thing I, I tweeted this today was that um, when an analyst looks at an e-ink device, they see a single-use device. You can only use this for one thing. Why would anyone want that when we've got multi-use devices like the iPad and now the Fire? 
But when like a, a voracious hardcore reader looks at an e-ink device, they see a multi-book device. Exactly. They're used to carrying books around with them anyway. This is one smaller than the smallest book you would carry with you, and it's a million books. Yeah, I don't understand. I've never understood the oh, it's only one use. I mean, I've been reading the Song of Ice and Fire books, which are you know thousand pages long on the Kindle, and it's it's much much preferable than than carrying around the giant thick trade paperback or a hardback or whatever. So the e-ink devices are living on and they're proliferating. They're they actually have more of them because they've got like the touch screen now. And then they've got the low-end version that has no keyboard and no touchscreen. That sounds like hell. Yeah. <laughs> no keyboard and no touchscreen. You just do it with a toggle. That's like a Durosport product. <laughs> Se- for $79, you can't go wrong. I mean, it- people were saying at $99, that would be the tipping point where the masses go for an ebook reader. $79 is just like a no-brainer for almost anyone who reads any number of books a year. That's going to be like, why not try it? Yep. It's interesting the way they've positioned the pricing on all of those e-ink devices as they talk about 79 and 99 and whatever the other one is, the, th- the 3G Touch. Um, the price they give is the price with offers. Buying it, so they're positioning it as this: the product is the product with offers because that's where the sales are going. Right. So you can pay extra to avoid offers. So it's like you're paying forty dollars extra to not get ads on your Kindle. That's it's interesting because a lot of people will automatically say, "Oh, sure, I'll pay forty dollars not to get ads." It turns out that some of those ads actually save you money. Okay, then there's this whole thing about the the Fire. Is it a competitor for the iPad? And uh, is it a legitimate tablet competitor? And look how cheap it is. And the thing I have to say about that is it's an entirely different kind of device from the iPad. It fills a different niche. It's a different size than the iPad. Uh, So, of course, it's going to be cheaper. It doesn't have a camera. It doesn't have a microphone. It doesn't have the same size screen. It doesn't have an email app. It's meant to be a media consumption tablet almost exclusively, except for the apps that are pre-approved. And it ties in perfectly with everything Amazon is doing, moving all of the media products to digital. Amazon has more deals than almost anyone for streaming media, both movies, TV, and music. And it's going to be a killer device for that sort of thing. Well, a couple of things, I mean... That that one, when the when the tablets came out, one of the first criticisms I remember hearing is, well, they're they're completely consumption devices. You cannot be creative using a tablet. I think the iPad has kind of already shown that you can, but this tablet really is purely for consumption of content. The second thing, though, Kirk, is isn't the Fire not using the e-ink, so it's almost a a break from Amazon's uh, use of e-ink for the other Kindles. Well, this is the first Kindle for people who don't read. Right. <laughs> Hang on one second. Hang on. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break too then. I'll be back. Well while we're waiting for Kirk, I'll do the sponsorship. Okay. This podcast is sponsored by the Duro Sport Electronics Company, makers of the Duro Cloud Music Player. With the Duro Cloud Music Player, the player is the music, the music is the cloud, and the cloud is the player. And coming soon, the DuroCloud chat recorder. There. 
According to Twitter, Kirk is changing his wardrobe. Oh. Go ahead and start How did I miss that? Yeah, I mean, me to go ahead with the R.E.M. stuff. I agree with everything you guys say. So, Kirk. Yeah. Kirk, um, according to Twitter, you just did a wardrobe change. <laughs> so, did you have a wardrobe? You know what? You know what? You know what? <laughs> it's none of your goddamn business. Did you just have a wardrobe malfunction, Kirk? No, I didn't. Are you our Nancy Grace? Are you the Nancy Grace of the Media Lipper Bebop podcast? <sighs> it's okay. You know what? <laughs> if it was anyone else, you wouldn't believe what I will say next. But because it's me, you will. <laughs> I have no idea who Nancy Grace is. So your insult means nothing to me. <laughs> you know what, Kirk? Here's how you find out. At some point, Google Nancy Grace wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> there you go. Of all the bands ever, it seemed like R.E.M. had it figured out. How to be a band and not lose your mind, how to stay a band and not lose your heart, and more importantly, how to have success and not lose your soul. And in the mid-1980s, it's nearly impossible to overstate just how large they loomed in our little burgeoning bohemian subculture. But I'll start with this, the R.E.M. Lyric Deciphering Party, which I believe was held some point in the summer of 1983. Rumor had pretty much taken over everyone's life at that point, and we were all obsessed with trying to figure out what Michael Stipe was actually singing. So someone, I don't remember who actually, had the bright idea of having a party where we would all get together and listen first to the Chronic Town EP, and then to Murmur, and figure out his lyrics once and for all. Well, I remember two things about the party. One, it was held at Tim's apartment. Yep. And two, we gave up halfway into gardening at night. Kirk, what did you think when you first read that Ari broke up? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, Jim won't be worried about the last podcast <laughs> not being recorded at all. Now he's going to be worried about R.E.M. All I know is that back when we talked about Murmur, you said that when it when, when Murmur came out, you thought it was inconceivable that R.E.M. would still be around in 2011. So I think... Uh, I <laughs> thought it, would, it was inconceivable that they would still be around in the year 2000. So I believe they heard that and said, he's right, we better break up. I think it's your fault, Kirk. No, I drew the deadline for R.E.M. much, 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 much earlier it coincided with the whole Into Outer Space with the Lucia Pamela thing. Right. 
in the can you imagine where you, where you will be in the year 2000 and I think that you know I could not imagine that Arium would still be abandoned so they lived at beyond a decade beyond my wildest expectation I am so happy their career lasted that long. I am enriched by their music. I love them just as much as anyone, and I wish them luck in the rest of their lives. It's about time they had the freedom they need to go on and do something else. Um, uh, can I just throw this out there real quickly? What, it, almost within, I'd say about 48 hours of them breaking up, <clears throat> they announced that, Warner Brothers announced that they were releasing the first greatest hits that spans their career, i.e. both labels IRS and Warner Brothers. And uh, that smacks a bit to me of this was all very well planned. Oh, I think it was incredibly well planned. I believe they may have been planning it even before they released... Their new album. Collapsed in the Their now. last album. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, what do you think their what do you think their legacy is? Their legacy, well, <clears throat> I would have to say, and people can disagree with me, but if you take a band's body of work, as as far as you know, we we always talk about things in terms of baseball statistics. I would put their, you know, their ratio of great songs to bad songs. They would have a very high ratio. Um, like it would be like the the inverse of an ERA, which you want really low. This would be really high because. You know, there's, there's out of their entire catalog, to me, they have one bad album, Around the Sun, which um, to this day I still can't get my head around. It just doesn't work as an album. It's got maybe one good song. It's easy to leave than to be left behind. Leaving was never my
was, you know, they got back on board with the, with the follow up, which uh, wasn't until Acceler- uh, Accelerate, right? Uh, yes. In between, yeah, Accelerate was the next one, which was a good album, but there was about five years in between there. And I don't know any other bands that have lasted that long that have been as consistent song for song. I, the, there's just nobody that really comes close in my in in my mind. If I ever want to fly Mulholland Drive I am alive Hollywood is under me I'm Martin Machine I'm Steve McQueen I'm Jimmy and the one thing that does kind of annoy me are these people that that are very kind of you know you know the types they're very hipster uh, kind of hipster douchebags like oh you know I didn't really like REM after their first EP they kind of really lost it after that I'm like you know shut the f up no night swimming deserves a quiet night I'm not sure all the People understand It's not like years ago Fear of getting caught of recklessness of water You know, they, they, they were, there was great stuff throughout their career. There really was. You know, this, some of the albums may have only had five great songs instead of ten, but there's still great stuff out there, and you just have to find it. Up to and including their last album. Exactly. Their last album. Again, half of it is great, and the other half is okay and fine. It's just not great, great. Given their consistency and longevity, do you? I mean, do you rank them as? Well, for me personally, because um, <clears throat> you know, the, the one of the few bands I've followed from the very beginning. You two, I didn't really follow at the very, very beginning. But are you sure? Because I was pushing you two pretty hard. You were, but I didn't really get into them until uh, you know October War, um, and then I went back and obviously I got into the early stuff quite heavily, but. You know, War is the first album that really kicked my ass ah. for you, too. Whereas, you know, the the first EP with R.E.M. Or, sorry, no, the first, the Flexi disc was, yep. no, I'm kidding. Um, hey, that's me, goddammit. Yeah, exactly.
So, um, so for me, that the, because they tied in with kind of my my own personal music kind of development. Obviously, I'd been into music for years before I got into REM, but it was at a pivotal time where my tastes were still you know kind of forming and. They, theirs were forming, and we had similar influences that we liked. So they they struck a chord, obviously, with us because we were all obviously into similar things. Not all. I'm a bit more probably on the commercial side than Jim and Kirk, but um, you know, REM. That's why our, to me, REM. That's why they to me, I saw them as a commercial band from day one because they they just had a great sound. I I knew they could go to the top, as it were. And the train at the time that that in, in the 80s before they got big that they would go big because no one who had ever actually heard them didn't like them right it's pretty hard not to like them and the people that did like them liked them pretty religiously that's me in the corner generations velvet underground and that is as much praise as i can give a band oh i think they were yeah they're thought of responsible for like thousands of bands across the country trying to you know do either jingly guitar or punk diy but accessible and i think but, that it, made, made them so but important. also to function to function as, as a band and not a bunch of not a collection of egos right
probably we, we've probably all seen them between us many many times Kirk I don't know when the last time you've seen them was but did you see them on their recent tours probably the green tour was the last time I saw them but remember I saw them before either of you guys saw them on the, on the murmur tour with let's active in Hollywood um, is that how I got that poster probably I went with Brett Cawford and and you were you both of you were totally invited but couldn't be bothered. Didn't have the money. No. Couldn't make it to see R.E.M. in 1981? 82? 82? 83. Yeah, we probably had jobs. 83, I think. Early 80s. Had a job, too. What do you think? I was an international jet-set playboy and going to Fresno State? That's what I remember. Don't you remember that, Tim? But you were, yeah, you were delivering papers. <laughs> Which, which, by the way, was just his cover for being yeah, an international. I'm judge. sorry. I'm sorry. What did you say? I was in the news distribution business. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I did not deliver the papers. I delivered the papers to the deliverers. I was. Uh, I distributed the bulk news to the delivery people. So who are mostly, who are mostly pre-teenage boys on bicycles. <laughs> what you're saying is you were a newspaper cartel, basically. I was part of the newspaper cartel, yes. You're hungry and you don't even try. Stay your head shaking because your arms are shaking. Your feet are shaking because you're shaking. Your head is shaking because your arms are shaking. Your feet are shaking because you're shaking. But um, I've seen uh, all the way up to the last tour, and every tour, you know, the other great thing about it, not only was were their albums consistent, that their live shows were also great always. They were never bad. Um, uh, we all saw them at the Star Palace in Fresno, 500 sweaty people, and we saw them at the Warner's Theater. That was my, that was my 21st birthday. Wow. R.E.M. and the Dream Syndicate on the night of my 21st birthday in a tiny, tiny club. Five REM albums, Tim. Ooh, five, five REM albums. It's not five REM songs. Well, no, no, no. I've got song five songs I, next. Did you not read? Um, no, I didn't. No, I didn't read. Okay. Yeah, my five would be Murmurs number one. Yep. No doubt. Reckonings in my top five. Um, but also, um, Life's Rich. Sorry, Life's Rich pageant. Which I really underrated at the time. Yeah which I really do love. And then also 
I really like New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Um, that one I think is severely underrated. Um, for my fifth one, I might have to go with... Um, um, it's, it's kind of a toss-up between Out of, out of, out of Time and um, Automatic for the People. I have got to find the river How about you, Kirk? Top five albums. Uh, I'd go Reckoning, Murmur, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which I really and Listen To on the Day They Broke Up, uh, Fables, and um, Life's Rich Patrick. I'd go Murmur, Automatic, Reckoning, Fables, and Document, which, by the way, is the proper order. Okay, Tim, five songs. Five songs. Pilgrimage, I think, is uh, pretty pretty hard to beat. Um, as a pop song, I think Fall on Me is hard to beat. Um, as a, a latter-day great pop song, I think that um, Imitation of Life is vastly underrated. Probably one of my favorite videos of all time. If, if you haven't seen it, see it. It's a 28-second loop that's played in various speeds and going backwards and forwards and zoomed in on. It's one of the most creative videos I've ever seen. Love it. Okay, Kirk, how about you? Can you pick five? Yeah. Like Superman. I am, I am, I am Superman, and I know what's happening. Uh, pale blue eyes, King of the Road. Just covers, huh? So that's Toys in the Attic was pretty good. <laughs> you know what? I just, I. I'm so I'm just not in that in fr I'm not in that not frame of mind where I ha where I have like my top five REM songs in a compartment that I can just like pull out and name. It just it I could come up with it, but I'd have to work on it for a couple of weeks. Can I get back to you? Yes, get back to me. We'll, when we do uh, episode 19, I will demand your five REM songs. All right. For me, it's Pilgrimage, Life and How to Live It. Remember Life and How to Live It. At 1985 at the Warner's Theater when it was just the most ferocious thing. Tim and I, I think we were like sitting in the front row because I went out and bought tickets. I bought tickets because I was like the only person in Fresno who knew when the tickets were going to go on sale for some reason. So I bought it. You were still in London. I bought us a pair of tickets yes. for like the front row. We were like putting our feet up. Mm -hmm. Like 
And Life and How to Live It that night was as ferocious as any punk rock song I've ever seen in any context. It was just amazing. I believe Fall on Me, Man on the Moon, It's the End of the World as We Know It, Talk About the Passion, 9 minus 9. Have I gone past 5 yet? Yeah, that's 5. Do you have anything else to say about REM? Uh, yeah, they will be missed, but, um, you know. I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad they were in our life. I'm, I always looked forward to a new REM album, even if the last one's a disappointment. I always, like, got a quickening of the pulse and got kind of excited that they were putting new music out because their music has meant so much to me for so long. So even though they went out while still making great records and still being a great band, the fact that there won't be any more records makes me sad. In the mix. This week we're spotlighting what's in Tim's mix. What do you got for us, Mr. Gaskill? So, am I only allowed to talk about three things? Uh, I may Is only I may cut it out to three things. You can talk about as many things as you want. All right. Well, the new Ryan Adams, Ashes and Fire, is a fine album. Um, it, it's kind of it plays a bit mellow and very mature and whatever, but it's one of his. It's one of Ryan's better albums. I know every. The, the, my problem with Ryan Adams is every album comes with this I, some somewhere the, the hype build up that says this is the best thing he's ever done and you know out of all his solo albums there are only about three that I really like and um, this is kind of turning into one of them I think along with uh, rock and roll and um, gold and uh, the one that was the two EPs what was that again Lo- Lo- love is hell uh, love is love is hell is actually one of my favorite Ryan Adams albums so there you go. Um, anyway, uh, Ashes and Fire. Good. Better to have tried it all. Least we got to taste it. Locked up in the chains. We change. Caught up in the chains. Can't take us away. How about the vaccines? Um, yeah, the vaccines, which I meant, mentioned last week, which we didn't get into because it was uh, it was abor- or not aborted, but it was technically not viable last <laughs> week. I mentioned the vaccines, who have a great album. I think uh, I'm not sure. I think they have another album, but uh, it's called "What Did You Expect from the Vaccines?" No, it's their debut. It is their debut. Yes. I think they had an EP or something before this, but it's um, they're a, a, a Brit. Brit band uh, with guitar, fuzzy guitars, great choruses, 
and short, punchy songs, except for, I think, one of the, uh, there's one long eight-minute song, which is awesome. This, to me, so, so far, it's one of my favorite albums of the year, and you would be, you could do a whole lot worse than, uh, than this, trust me. If you want to come back, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. If you want to come back, do you want to come back, it's all right. The other thing I just started listening to this week was the new Jayhawks album, Mockingbird Time, which uh, is kind of good. It's it's not like, I wouldn't put it up there with uh, their absolute classics, but it is the Jayhawks and it is the reuniting reunite, of uh, Mark Olson and, um, and um, what's his face? Uh, Gary Lewis. <laughs> and it is the reuniting of Mark Olson. Leaving at once <laughs> uh, it is the reuniting of Mark Olson and Gary Lewis, so uh, that's always a good thing. And uh, I look forward to spending more time with this album, and it's got some videos with it and everything. It is the Jayhawks. And one last thing, real quickly the Pearl Jam 20, they've got a documentary out, and which I haven't seen, but. Um, the final track on the double disc is a live track taken from a show at the Universal Amphitheater that Jim and I were actually at. Woo! Pearl Jam rocks! Yeah, it was uh, the, 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 uh, the version of Rearview Mirror, and it's a great version. And um, it totally kicked ass. It, and it's nice to hear, you know, kind of have it documented for me and not having to search it out. In, in another format, i.e. an illegal download or something. And what's annoying is uh, this was such a good show, and it wasn't one of the ones that they actually put out live uh, because, you know, they did whole tours that they put out live discs. Tim, uh, I don't want to do an illegal download, so you make a copy of that for me, please? Yes. Okay, cool. Oh, sir. Just one more thing. One more thing. Kirk. Okay, so... You guys have heard of Neil Stevenson? Mm, yeah. Yes. He's an author. Okay, he's got a new book out. Ream D. Which is an intentional misspelling of Read Me. And uh, this is a pretty awesome thousand-page... Neil Stevenson novel that I'm first of all I'm trying to figure out is this really Neil Stevenson's first novel that is actually set in the 21st century uh, uh, well yeah I think it is yeah. because this, this, I think this is really Neil Stevenson's first novel set in the 21st century when was the Diamond Age set or Snow Crash Way into the future. Snow Crash, I think, was still into the future. I don't think Diamond Age was that far into the future. I don't think... I think it was beyond the 20th, 21st century. 
So anyway, I believe I believe my th- my working theory, and I'm too lazy to check this out before doing the podcast, <laughs> is that Neil Stephen this is Neil Stevenson's first novel set in the 21st century, and you know the 21st century is the most Neil Stevenson of all centuries. <laughs> so it's, it's appropriate that he would finally write a book set in his century. Right. It's, it's a great book. There are have been have you, a problem. Have you, fi- have you finished it? Oh, no. I'm a slow reader. <laughs> and I, I just start. It's a thousand-page novel. It's epic. It's epic by any scale. He's written 6,000-page novels in the last 12 years. Ooh. This is one of the modern ones. He's the first one he's written for the 21st century. Slight problem with the ebook edition. <laughs> now you would expect maybe that Neil Stevenson readers are going to be reading the ebook so that they would spend a little extra time getting the ebook right. It's been anything but. The first week after the book was reviewed, the reviews on Amazon were about two and a half is what they were averaging out to, which is not good for a major book by a major author that's actually a really good book. And most of those reviews were about two things. They were complaining about the price because it came out at $18, $17, which for an ebook is unbelievably expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there are costs associated with producing the book that are comparable to producing a print book, except when you look at the end quality of what you've produced and realize that it's a mess. The Kindle edition was full of random hyphens. It was full of misplaced words, sentences spliced into paragraphs. It was like sections of it got to be jumbled. It was bad. For $18, it was really bad, and it was all that much more annoying because it was a really good Neil Stevenson book. So Twitter breaks out in outrage. The reviews on Amazon break out in outrage. HarperCollins mysteriously takes notice and pulls the book from Amazon for over a day. It was not available in the Kindle store, and apparently there is now a cleaned-up edition available. I'm still working on the old edition. Will they um, let you re-download it? Good question. This is, an, this is an interesting thing. Amazon has run into problems in the early days before anyone had really thought the implications through. Pulling books and replacing them with new editions is not something you can do automatically because people view them as books that they have purchased. And the publisher might change them for all kinds of reasons that the owner who bought the book may not want to swap out for a new edition. Right. Think Hmm. of political implications there or philosophical implications there. It's one thing when you're correcting typographical errors. It's another thing when maybe you're changing facts, pulling things out based on someone who claims that they've been defamed. People who bought the book want want to at least have access to the book as it was when they purchased it. Uh, so the way it works out is that um, apparently the publisher has to ask Amazon to notify all of the purchasers that there's an updated version at which point they can request to 
get an update that would replace their existing edition, but they would lose any customization of the actual book, which would include whisper sync position, bookmarks, annotations, uh, or any additional notes that they might have made on the text. So all of those would be lost upgrading. Tim, one more thing. Happyplace.com by the people who brought you some e-cards. This is the this is the site that makes me laugh the most because it's the one that has the brilliantly smart-ass responses to completely well-meaning signs. You've probably seen it somewhere. Somebody's probably linked to it. If you haven't seen it, go to it now. It is very, very funny. Um, these are kind of signs that you see every day, but they've been doctored a bit, and uh, they they just make me laugh. And awesome. You've got to check it out. Happyplace.com. If he'd hit Baylor for Buckner and yanked the first baseman. One more thing. Baseball's postseason starts this week. Without, we learn tonight while we're recording this, the Boston Red Sox. And while I've made my peace with the fact that the Giants are also not going to be trying for a repeat this year, I do wonder what storyline is going to emerge. Back in 2003, there really was only going to be one storyline. The Cubs and the Red Sox were going to meet in the World Series, after which we wouldn't have to hear about somebody's stupid curse. Well, it never happened. The Red Sox left Pedro in a bit too long, and Aaron fucking Boone ended their hopes. And the Cubs? Well, what happened to the Cubs is the subject of an excellent new documentary called Catching Hell, which describes how a fan, Steve Bartman, ended up becoming an instant scapegoat for an eight-run ending that ended up costing the Cubs Game 6 of the NLCS and ultimately their shot at the World Series. Bartman, like every other fan around him, was reaching for a foul ball that was in that no-man's land where the seats in the playing field collide, and it was his hand that kept left fielder Moises Alou from having a chance to catch the ball. Now at this point, it's good to remember that the Cubs were up 3-0 in the 7th and they had one of the best pitchers in baseball, Mark Pryor, just cruising through the lineup of the Florida Marlins. That foul ball should have been a hiccup. But momentum, it's a real thing, of course. And for some reason, Pryor started giving up hits, and Alex Gonzalez booted what should have been an inning-ending double play. Before anybody knew it, the Marlins were up 8-3, and poor Steve Bartman was an instant, and to some people, lifelong pariah. Now remember, Bartman didn't make any errors, didn't give up any hits, and the Cubs were ahead in the next game, Game 7, before they ultimately lost it. And yet somehow, a hundred years of Chicago Cubs fan frustrations rained down upon his head almost instantly, and that was pretty much it for Steve Bartman's life as a Cubs fan. As I watched Catching Hell last night, all I could think was, shame on you Cubs fans. I don't believe in curses, and that Billy Goat one seems particularly stupid. But I do believe in karma, and I think Cubs fans and the Chicago media have earned themselves a shitload of bad karma for how how they treated Steve Bartman. And that does it for Media Loper Bebop episode 17, Time as an Abstract. Thanks again to Tim Gaskell. Still here. And Kirk Biglioni. Go Rays! And one more time, I'd like to thank R.E.M., who will never, of course, hear this podcast or read any of the things I've written about them or said about them over the years, for all of the great music. And thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel. <laughs>